time, ongoing, um, day by day, month by month, year by year, praying that God would give us direction on um, the the series that we choose to 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 preach on, the passages that we choose to address, uh, trusting that God is going to lead us. Um, according to his wisdom and foreknowledge, uh, into, into, into topic, topics and subjects that are going to, to meet the needs of, of the church and the times that we're in. Uh, with, with COVID and now the, the really what's become a global uproar in regard to racial injustice, um, it, it's, I, I have felt very torn throughout these series, um, but I have also felt that, that um, the, the topics that we have selected in the Psalms and the need to, to uh, go to God with our struggles um, and this series now on, on mental health, that these two series have really, uh, they're really timely. They're really timely for us as a church uh, in really addressing and dealing with the, um, the, the challenges and the suffering that we, the, that we face at this time. Um, I do want to say that our, we plan this week um, with this, uh, really, this, just this, the, the challenge of feeling torn apart in a number of ways. We, we have been working on a statement that we're going to post on the realm this week in regard to uh, where we're at uh, as, as a church, as individuals, as, as a country, and as, as a, really as a world in, in this point in history in regard to race and injustice and, and our thoughts on it and where we go from here. Uh, so we'll be looking for that um, as well. But to this uh, series on, on uh, mental health, um, last week Deirdre did an excellent job addressing our tendency to make moral and value distinctions between the material world and the spiritual realm. Um, the world essentially eject, rejects the existence of the spiritual realm or at best acknowledges that it may exist but that it really doesn't have anything to do with our, with our everyday lives. Uh, religious people tend to elevate the realm of the spirit and, and minimize or disregard the things of the material world. Um, Deirdre concluded that to forsake the reality of the goodness of both the material and the spiritual realms is essentially a move to, to deny the gospel. The gospel is the proclamation of the word of God, uh, the son of God made flesh, coming into this material world in a material body. And to fully experience the goodness of God towards humanity, we must fully embrace the realities uh, and worth of both the material and spiritual realms, recognizing that, that God is at work to fulfill his purposes in, in both of these realms. So today's message, we're going we're gonna to take that core idea and, and work it out in terms of how we think about the sources of knowledge and wisdom that we pursue, uh, specifically for the purpose of warmly and effectively caring for people. So I want to I want to, it's, it's, it's a, the, the task that Deirdre set out for me in the sermon today is, is quite large. I want to give a brief definition of, of Christian psychology uh, and, and what its goals are. And I want to give a brief history of the, the work of soul care, especially within the context of the church and how it has interacted with the professional disciplines of psychology and psychiatry over the last uh, decades. Uh, from there, I want to look at how the Thessalonian church was addressing uh, this concern of, of soul care, 
uh, and what fruit they anticipated from Christ and from the church and from the Spirit as they lived their lives in the world and the challenging circumstances at the time. So, uh, as Deirdre mentioned last week, we are heavily relying upon a couple of books uh, for this series. The primary one is called Foundations for Soul Care by Eric Johnson. Uh, Johnson completed his PhD in psychology from Michigan State and went on to graduate studies in theology uh, and is now the professor of pastoral care at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He also taught, uh, interestingly enough, psychology and theology here at Northwestern College in St. Paul for, for nine years. Um, he's considered a, a leading scholar in the movement for an integrated approach for psychological care, one that integrates the resources of God, the, the gospel, the spirit, the church, along with the resources of the professional disciplines for what he would consider uh, a robust Christian psychology. Here's, he, he argues for what, in his words, is a single comprehensive holistic discipline that seeks to understand individual human beings using all available and relevant resources. So he calls this discipline Christian psychology. He's not focused just on the study of theology. He's not focused just on the study of psychology or psychiatry. He is focused on the study of, of individual human beings with the perspective of using all of the resources available that are good for that work uh, to produce effective soul care in people. Now, the professional discipline of psychology has four goals, to describe, to explain, to predict, and to control behavior. Johnson argues that the goal of Christian psychology is the transformation, not just of behavior, but of the, of the inner and outer person into Christ's likeness. In the passage for, for today, Paul prays that God would sanctify completely the church. He describes this more fully as, in Paul's words, Jesus Christ's words through Paul, their whole spirit, their whole soul, and their whole body would be blameless. And a, and a more accurate translation of that term, blameless, is actually to be made more beautiful. I want to unpack these ideas a little bit. So what does he mean by spirit and soul and body? And I would briefly explain it this way. And this is by, in no way a, a comprehensive treatment on these, these ideas. So the spirit is, is the non-material individual life force that manifests itself in the soul of a person, which is the, which is the inner life and the personality. So the, the, the spirit is... is, is is uh, who we are as an inner being, and the soul is the expression of that inner being and our personality. These things, obviously, um, are, are hard to discern, distinguish between the two of them, but they then dwell in a physical body. And so we have the spirit, the soul, and the body. And what Paul is saying here um, is that he is... Desiring, he prays that all aspects of, of who we are as people would come into a place of complete and whole beauty. Now, the Bible teaches that outside of Christ, our spirits and our souls and our bodies are under the control of the prince of the power of the air, 
which is the satanic force at work against Christ and his purposes. For those in Christ who have been given the Holy Spirit, the, the spirits and the souls and the bodies have been made one with Christ. We've been sealed with Christ as his possession for all, for all eternity. And under the power of the Holy Spirit then, our souls and our bodies are transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. This work is called sanctification, the process of becoming like Christ. So what does it mean to experience what Paul prays for here as a complete sanctification? Well, I think it means that our inner beings, our souls, and our bodies are perfectly beautiful. They are without ugliness or blemish at all. It would, mean, it would mean to shine with the glory of Jesus Christ in all aspects of our being and our experience. It would mean that our spirits and souls and bodies would experience peace, which is the absence of any internal or external conflict. It would be, they would be absent of any mental anxieties and fears. We'd be absent of the feelings of guilt and shame. It would be complete freedom and happiness and prosperity to use some of the language that we've been seeing in, in, in the Psalms and wisdom literature. Now, while the professional disciplines of, of psychology and psychiatry have as their goal the ability to ultimately uh, control behaviors, the work of God is to completely regenerate the inner and outer lives of a person through the work of the Holy Spirit, to grow people into the radiant and free beauty and power of Jesus Christ. So how can the work of Christian soul care and the professional disciplines be integrated for a more holistic approach to accomplish this purpose? Well, before I get into that, I want to spend a little bit of time just, in, just to look at how has this historically unfolded um, in, in, on, in, the, in the world. So, before Christ, God provided a means of soul care through the writings of the Old Testament. The writings provided a, a narrative that enabled readers to, to know God and to set their lives within a larger context, giving them meaning and purpose, very important things in terms of our, of our mental health. God provided laws then in order to help uh, people distinguish between what was harmful and what was good behaviors and attitudes. Um, the scriptures in the Old Testament also provided some ways to interpret and understand uh, suffering and its source, um, and also directions on how to lead a, a, a wise and um, productive and happy life. They also gave us models, as we saw in the book of Psalms, for how to uh, process and, and go to God uh, in the midst of grief and suffering, but also in the experience of, of joy and gratitude. Jesus and the early church, the apostles, um, continued to teach and reflect uh, upon God and his teachings for us uh, for the purpose of the, the care of people, for the care of souls. So the Christian writings, uh, as we see throughout the entire New Testament, reflect a, a deep understanding of, of the psychological and spiritual effects of sin uh, within individuals, within families, within churches, within all society. 
And they also reflected a, a deep understanding of the work of God in the lives of people to deliver people from that sin and the effects of sin so that they would reflect the, the glory of Jesus Christ, the glory of God dwelling within them, even in the contexts of extreme suffering. And as was is the case in the Old Testament, uh, experiencing and enjoying the presence of God, being one with him, provided the means through which people could, could overcome the crushing uh, psychological and physical effects of sin and experience a life of joy and peace, again, even in the midst of extreme suffering. So the centuries after the early church carried this tradition from the Bible and continued to work out its, its soul care effects. The early monastics devoted much of their time and energy in their reading of Scripture and in their ministry to soul care efforts. In the Reformation, the gospel was rediscovered, sparked by Martin Luther's own experience with, with what scholars now believe were very debilitating uh, psychopathological disorders. Martin Luther seemed to demonstrate very extreme problems in terms of, of mental health, very diagnosable problems. Well, his discovery of the gospel transformed his experience, uh, and that informed the Reformation and its works for really centuries afterward. Uh, and they engaged in vigilant efforts to provide for the care of souls through the renewing of the mind in the gospel of Jesus Christ and it's, and it's very applicable uh, and fruitful teachings around what it meant to be, to be justified and sanctified in the gospel. The Puritans carried this tradition into their churches in both Europe and America and produced what is still considered to be some of the most substantive works uh, from the scriptures in regard to soul care in all of history. Now, with the coming of the Enlightenment and of scientific method, the place and the focus of theology transitioned from soul care and the shepherding of churches into the study of theology as a scientific and academic discipline within the context of university graduate schools and theological seminaries. Now, it's not to say that soul care work wasn't being done in churches, uh, but what you, you didn't see it as the, as the core fo focus of, of the work of its leading scholars and theologians within the, within the churches. Really, the, the, the graduate schools and the seminaries and the scholars within them became the, the, the focus and the crux of what was being done in terms of, of, of theology. So the great soul care and pastoral work of the Reformers and the Puritans took a back seat to the increasingly isolated and fragmented theological specializations occurring in the multiple, multi, multidisciplinary schools. So once science became the reigning cultural authority along with its disciplines, soul care eventually became the work of the professional disciplines of psychology and psychiatry. It had been centuries since the church and its scholars produced a comprehensive and robust soul care theology, and the secular efforts were growing in influence to meet not only the soul care needs of the church, but also of the broader culture as well. 
So various streams of soul care emerged. Once, once it became increasingly clear that this, that this huge gap was present, especially in the church, uh, several approaches emerged. Mainline Protestant churches produced approaches consistent with their perspective of the Bible and of the supernatural world at this time. And so it really took on the character and nature of what the secular disciplines were unfolding because they had a low view of Scripture and they had a low view of, of supernatural power. Evangelicals split between what, what I call gospel light efforts that also reflected more of the disciplines of professional psychology and psychiatry with a little bit of Bible kind of tacked on. Uh, so that was one movement and approach out of the evangelical world. The other one was more of a, of a fundamentalist biblical counseling approach that shunned any effort to incorporate the secular sciences. So you had these dichotomies taking place. Now, as the church began to produce more scholars trained in the professional disciplines, as well as thoroughly being grounded in the scriptures and in the resources of God, a new approach has been emerging over the last several decades um, that seeks to integrate the resources of God, the Bible, the Spirit, the church, and the, the, the best of what is available in the professional disciplines. It's called the integrationist approach, and it's what Eric Johnson is, is promoting in his book, Soul Care. And it's really what is leading the way now uh, in terms of, a, of, a, of, the, of the evangelical approach to, to Christian soul care, to Christian psychology. It's the approach that we're seeking to develop here at, at Twin Cities Church. And I, th and I think the, the book of 1 Thessalonians provides a, a good example and actually some instruction to move this way. Now, the gospel's inter introduction into Thessalonica uh, caused no small disturbance. Opponents to the gospel accused Paul and his team of, of breaking the law, and these people hired uh, professional rioters to cause great riots and uproar in the city of Thessalonica. Under fear for their lives, Paul and his team literally left the city. So the authorities had stepped in, and they arrested a number of the, of the people that had come to Christ, but who were also high-profile people in the city. Uh, so they arrested these Christians. They brought them before the courts. They fined them, and they warned them uh, to discontinue in their, their, in their disturbances, even though the Christians really did not have any responsibility in it. Now, since the experience of riots, I think, is so fresh in our minds, especially here in our city, I think we can easily put ourselves into the place of those early Thessalonian Christians and put ourselves into being, place, being in the place of what would it mean to be at the center or to be blamed for the cause of a riot. Can you imagine being at the center of what happened in our city? Where thousands of people's lives are affected, where people are dying, where businesses are being destroyed, where livelihoods and families are being crushed. Can you imagine being blamed for that 
kind of, of an occurrence. The challenges to mental health would be extraordinary. Were they being shamed by those close to them for believing in this new message of Jesus Christ, which caused them to abandon their gods, which caused them to abandon their family and traditions, which caused this, which seemed to at least cause this uproar and this rioting in this, this large city? Were they being mocked and were they being slandered and made to feel like they were the cause of all these problems? Were they being blamed for the destruction of property? Were they being blamed for all of this trouble? So in addition to this, now again, try to put yourself into that place. Try to put yourself into the center of of being the, the cause of the riots in Minneapolis. Additionally, the Thessalonians seem to have had several of their, of their family members and church members die in the time between uh, Paul left and when he received and wrote received news from, from Timothy and then wrote this letter. So Paul had given them some instruction about what it meant to die in Christ, but it seems like they had either forgotten what he had taught it um, or something escaped them because he, he needed to reteach it. And I, th- I think it's not an unusual thing. Uh, if, if, you know, I, it's been a long time since I've had someone real close to me die, but but I'm occasionally talking to people that do have uh, people die that are close to them. And regardless of how long that they've been in the faith, it seems like it's a very necessary thing to do to remind and shore up the, the teachings of Jesus Christ about what happens when people die in Christ. So that's what Paul had to do here. So they, had, they, had, they were at the center of these riots that had affected the whole city, and people are dying in the midst. And maybe, maybe some people had even been killed as a result of, of the conflict that, that had been uh, stirred up. Now, in the midst of these challenges, uh, in Thessalonica, humanity's natural inclinations began to reveal themselves. Uh, in their pursuit of comfort from this suffering, they stopped working. They started gossiping, and they started engaging in sexual immorality. Now, we all know work is toil. It's, it requires focus of mind, focus of body, to stay engaged and productive. If we're feeling depressed or anxious or afraid or insecure, it's hard to work. It's hard to work diligently with those kinds of mental health conditions. And when we find it hard to sit still and focus... And if we're feeling insecure about our sense of self and who we are and our family members are all down upon us and our friends, if we're under the weight of shame and guilt, we oftentimes resort to to get involved in the affairs of others, to engage in gossip, to slander and put others down. And for some reason, this makes us feel better about ourselves. Speaking negatively of others or even just talking about others in a way as if we know their lives somehow gives us a sense of higher standing. Also, when we get restless and secure and fearful, we're more susceptible to the temptations of of companionship and release and comfort and intimacy that often accompanies and the pleasure that accompanies sexual relationships. So in their pursuit of all these things, Paul said that, you know, you're leaving the calling of Jesus Christ behind. 
And when you leave the calling of Jesus Christ behind, which he makes clear in that in our passage from chapter 5, you, you are stepping outside of the work that Jesus is doing to bring our, our spirits, our souls, and our bodies into a whole and complete and, and beautiful unity. Now, there are a number of things that Paul teaches the Thessalonians to help them overcome the suffering that they were experiencing, the mental suffering that they were experiencing, the emotional anguish, and to once again engage the call of Christ. So in in addition to clarifying Jesus' teachings about what happens when people die, uh, he instructed them to to, to follow and to respect uh, the leaders of the church who were helping them uh, overcome these things. Uh, he, He also gave them really really great instruction. We don't have time to get into today, but you see some uh, very uh, focused and intentional direction that Paul had in his mind. Listen, there are, there are different types of people in the church that need different types of soul care. And so you see him providing some customized teaching for the various types of personalities and situations that you're going to face. He instructs them to do good even to their enemies Revenge doesn't do anything for our mental or physical health. And he reminds them to rejoice and give thanks to God even in the midst of suffering, which is, as we see throughout the New Testament, a very consistent instruction on dealing with suffering. But then he gives them one more set of instructions, the one that is focusing on the reading that we had for today. He tells them to avoid quenching the Holy Spirit, to avoid despising prophecies, to test everything, to hold fast to what is good, and to abstain from any form of evil. So these are all aspects of a single instruction on how he was directing the Thessalonian Christians to pursue sources for knowledge and wisdom. Now, this passage clearly teaches that the Spirit is at work through the people of the church and at times provides what the text calls prophecies. And a prophecy is an inspired word. It's an inspired message. Now, we think generally that an inspired message or an inspired word is from God, and if it's going to be from God, then it's going to be good. But the passage clearly says that uh, some of the prophecies that they would receive are not necessarily going to be good. Paul says that they need to test it which means that they need to examine it, analyze it, try it out. See if it's good. If it's good, follow it. If it turns out to be evil, get away from it. Put it outside of you. It's not a valid message. It's not a valid word. The The passage, I think, clearly infers that not all prophecies, not all words of knowledge are of God. God wouldn't provide something evil to the church. And while the term does mean inspired message, it also had a general use at the time. We don't use, obviously use the term uh, in our day for these kinds of things, but it could include words from, from philosophical or scientific experts and also could include words of poets. Poets could be prophets. Now, to some degree, it seems that Paul is saying that the Spirit is at work in a variety of sources, and that the the value of these words and sources may not be readily apparent. 
We can receive knowledge, we can receive inspired messages from a variety of sources that the Bible may not specifically address super clearly. And that's when we need to, to pray and evaluate and test the sources of knowledge. In fact, Paul says to examine everything carefully. If we can determine what is good, we hold fast to it. If we determine that it's evil, we let it go. Jesus is committed. I love the closing passages here. Jesus is committed to, to the work of bringing our spirits, our souls, and our bodies to a place of complete wholeness and beauty, a place where we are one with ourselves. Our inner being, longing for peace, is not at odds with our temperaments that are angry, confused, and despairing. Sin isn't waging a war against our minds and our bodies, creating stresses of guilt and shame in our spirit. Our bodies aren't sources of defeat and frustration and anger and hopelessness that we're, that we're always feeling bad about. We are steadfast in our emotions, expressing the right type and level of emotion in the right circumstances and at the right time without sinning against God or others. That's one that I would really love to master. The right emotion at the right time, at the right level, in the right circumstance, while not offending God and the people around me. And that may sound like perfection. And to be fair, it is. Our complete sanctification and blamelessness, our complete wholeness and beauty in Christ, will only come when we at last see Jesus face to face and we experience the final transforming work of the Spirit and are given a new body. But Jesus Christ, and this is, this is super important that we understand this, Jesus Christ is at work in us now with this goal. Jesus knows that it's not going to become perfect until we see him. But he wants to work his spirit into our lives now that affects our spirits, our souls, and our bodies in a complete way. So this means that if, if he is engaged, then we are going to be entered, we are in a process to, to move us closer and closer and closer to that final reality. But to experience it, we must turn to, from those things that quench the spirit. And again, there's a number of things that the text addresses, but today I want to focus on quenching the spirit in regard to our sources of wisdom. So I think that there are two ways that we can quench the spirit, and both of them have a tendency toward dualism, what Deirdre addressed last week. Both have a had and continue to have the following. So the first way that we can approach wisdom and knowledge that quenches the spirit um, is the belief that divine wisdom only comes through the Bible. And this has been the, the approach of the traditional biblical counseling movement. Uh, and it necessarily views, and this is a good thing, that union with Christ through faith in the gospel, which is revealed in the Bible, is the foundation upon which all soul care is based. We would affirm that. 
But it doesn't just stop there. It goes on to, the, to assert that the work of soul care is addressed in the scriptures and is carried out under the work of the Holy Spirit through Christian context, and that's all that can be a part of it. This approach holds that secular sources will undermine the sufficiency of Scripture, the authority of the Word of God, the authority of the church, and will slowly erode Christian foundations within that approach. The problem with that approach is that the Bible never makes that claim itself. In fact, it argues against it. I think this passage that we're looking at today argues against it. Scripture itself teaches that comprehension of God is possible through observation of the created world. In fact, that notion is responsible for the birth of science. The conviction that there is truth to be understood in observing the created world, the material world. Truth can be gleaned from that. So contrary to its intent, the traditional biblical counseling model approach actually quenches the spirit in blocking sources of knowledge outside of the Bible. Now, the second way to quench the spirit is to make the opposite effort, to deny sources of wisdom simply because they do not find their basis and foundation in scientific or professional disciplines. So whereas the traditional biblical counseling approach puts all of its resources in the Bible and in the resources of God and holds off the professional disciplines, the second approach that also quenches the spirit puts all of its resources into the professional disciplines and holds off God and all of his resources. Now, we would anticipate this perspective from those who never claim belief or faith in Christ. However, this, this view is held by many who would claim to be Christians, and I think that there's a, a several reasons for this. The church over the last several centuries has simply failed to sufficiently address and provide for the adequate care of souls in its shepherding and counseling efforts. In this void, the prominent and ordered models for soul care have primarily been the professional disciplines. Because it hasn't taken, it, taken these things as seriously as it has needed, the efforts in the church do not have the appearance of being as robust or reliable as the professional disciplines. The second reason, I think, that, that we as Christians tend to elevate the sciences over Scripture is because the, the work of psychology and psychiatry uh, are such developed scientific disciplines within our culture and because we are the, the products of a culture that gives great authority and weight to science, we inherently and automatically give those disciplines a higher place, a higher status. To the modern person, the work of soul care is the work of the professional disciplines. But this cannot be the conviction of the Christian. If indeed... Christ is actively working to complete, to completely make our spirits and our souls and our bodies whole and beautiful. If, if that is his goal, and that work stems from our union with him, we must see that first and foremost, the resources he provides through the gospel, 
through the Spirit and through the church are, are foundational and essential for soul care work. And with these resources, we are then able to approach knowledge from the professional disciplines and other sources to maximize our soul care efforts through every aspect of the Spirit's work as we study and evaluate, incorporate what is good, and set aside what is not. Since it is indeed that the Spirit created the world, and there are things to learn there from Him. In conclusion, I just want to read how Eric Johnson positions this. While the Bible is sufficient for salvation, doctrine, and morality, the phenomena of Scripture itself force upon us the conclusion that it was not God's design to have the Bible answer directly all of the, all of the concern of psychologists or counselors for all places and in all times, containing everything that would be of value to soul care in the future. Rather than stick to a well-intentioned but unnecessarily restrictive doctrine of sufficiency, let us take the word of God we have been given and bring it into new realms unexplored in biblical times, guiding our understanding of psychological genetics, the formation of neural networks, emotion development, personality structures, attachment relationships, and so on. Let us unleash the word of God we have, suffuse its wisdom through the domain of soul care, and see what happens. Jesus has called us to complete wholeness and beauty of spirit and of soul and of body. As the word says, he is faithful and he will surely do it using all of the resources he has at his disposal. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for the full resources that we have through Jesus Christ and the Spirit and the church and your word to bring about completeness and wholeness in all aspects of our lives. God, I pray that you would strengthen us as, as a people to draw upon all of these resources to the best of our ability, that we would be tireless in this effort so that we, God, could become Christ-like and to fulfill the calling that you have given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.